This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you, as usual, by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Byrne, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the Jewish Autonomous Oblast, a somewhat independent region in the Russian Far East, wedged between Siberia and northern China. Its capital is the city of Birbijan, and with 75,000 inhabitants, it is by far the most populated part of the region. For that reason, the name Birbijan is often used to refer to the whole area. Officially founded in 1934 as an attempt to create a Jewish state within Russian borders, the territory was the world's first attempt at a Jewish national homeland in modern times, and today is Russia's only autonomous oblast. Aside from Israel, it is the world's only official Jewish territory. Okay, so today's episode is slightly different to your average uh, episode of 80 Days. That's because today's episode is our very first commissioned episode. Mm-hmm. As some of you may remember, we ran a successful Kickstarter campaign earlier this year, and one of our very generous donors uh, was a guy called Ian, who is going to be joining us uh, for a brief point at the beginning of this podcast. Ian chose this episode, which we're very excited about. He uh, He's the first of our listeners to commission his very own episode. And... But it's something we're open to. So if you're oh, listening yeah. and there's a place you want to know more about, get in touch. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're going to hear a little bit from Ian and hear why exactly he decided to choose this region for us to podcast about. So, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm oh, Ian Jesus Prince. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just your average American. I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you fix that in post. Yeah. Uh, oh, about me. I'm Ian. I live in New York City, America. Although right now I am in my parents' dining room in Maryland, home for the weekend. And nice. very nice. Yeah, and I am barely employed at an off-Broadway <laughs> theater in New York at the moment. So yeah. So. Ian, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, maybe why you picked this subject or like how you came across uh, the region that we're talking about today? Absolutely. So if you've been to New York City, and this is where Mark probably slaps his head and goes, God, we asked him a simple question. But (laughs) if you're living in New York City, there's a very big bookstore called The Strand, which is right by Union Square Park. It's a really big bookstore. When Mark visited, I might have walked him by it, pointed at it, and gone, The Strand. And if you go in there, it's a very nice, very big bookstore, very independent-y kind of feeling, but I'm sure it's gigantic money. 
And when you go in, they have all of the different books uh, on display on tables, like uh, critic picks and recommendations, uh, yada yada. And one of the times, this book was just sitting there, the one called Where the Jews Aren't, the sad and absurd story of, how do we say it, guys? Biribijan, I think. Biribijan, Russia's Jewish autonomous region. And it was just sitting up there propped up and... Maybe it was in new releases, or maybe it was like our staff picks. Who knows? Probably somebody just saw Jews and figured it's New York, so this will get some attention. Yeah, I think it came out in September 2016 or so. It's oh, recent. Yes, it's a yeah. recent book. So it could have been that reason, and this would have been a little bit ago, at least you know before I went to Ireland. So I don't know, however many months ago that was. Uh, so I just saw it. I took a look at it. And I went, huh, a Jewish autonomous region. I'd never heard of that. Never heard of that thing at all. And I thought, well, that sadly sounds interesting. I'll take a picture of it and show it to the three Irish guys I know who do a geography podcast. But the reason I was interested in it is because I did Birthright back in 2014. And if you're not familiar, that's the uh, essentially you raise your hand up and go, hey, guys, I'm Jewish. And then the Birthright organization goes, oh, are you? do you believe in the Christian God? And you go, no. And then they go, okay, great. Here's a trip to Israel. And oh, they, right, right. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. They have, the interview process is twofold. Pretty much the same questions each time. And they're all pretty much, oh, are you Jewish? Oh, do you believe in Jesus? Okay, then. <laughs> Come to Israel. Okay. And, and, and are, are, are you Jewish? I am Jewish on my mother's side. Uh, oh, which is the side that counts. Yes. <laughs> so I am officially, I've got that official mark on me. Although mm. back in college, I was treasurer of the Hillel Club. And okay. knew, and I was the least knowledgeable member of it, despite being the second most Jewish person on it. Of the okay. Hillel Club? Yes, yes. So yes. Yeah, a, a okay. com completely a religious family. But I wanted a free trip to Israel. I was told it's oh, a good geez. way to find a wife. Uh, <laughs> so I did, oh, I did birthright. Totally failed to find a wife. Let's just make a note of the timestamp on this just so we can edit all this <laughs> I thought it was interesting that, and part of the, when I first saw the book and kind of just opened up the first page and thought maybe I'll pitch this towards Mark without reading it myself. <laughs> Was that the right there in the front? It has the sort of comparison by numbers of the Jewish autonomous region and Palestine under British mandate, mm -hmm. and the sort of breakdown of the size and the heat and the type of land. And they have that little, like the type of lands graph here. It sort of compares how you know a lot of Palestine was just desert, and a lot of the <laughs> autonomous region was swamps. So I can see how at a time where there is no Jewish state, you can look at both of those and go, well, all right, well, the other one's just all desert anyway. But it does have the appeal of being like where Jacob's from, as opposed to Siberia. You know, yeah. th and that's why Uganda lost. You just, you can't beat a pitch. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ian. We're going to move on now to the uh, quote unquote meat of the episode. So, uh, <laughs> Joe, do you want to... <laughs> Do, you want, do we settle on do you that? Want to tell I know we're calling production meeting on. Uh, anyway, never mind. We're all vegetarians. Okay, the meat of the episode. <laughs> Joe, do you want to lead off with the uh, early history of this region? Yeah. So before we dive into the the story of the the Jewish autonomous oblast and this place becoming this 
attempted Jewish homeland. This, I just want to give us a bit of background on the actual geographical area where the Jewish Autonomous Oblast is. So as you mentioned up mm-hmm. top, um, it's in the Russian Far East. It's actually closer to me than it is to you, which yeah. <laughs> yeah. is kind of kind of mind-bending. It's almost twice as close to Hong Kong as it is to Switzerland. Like it's, if you, it's in if the you wanna, far, far east of Russia. In that European country If you want to extend it even Russia. further, it's so far east, it's almost west. <laughs> yeah. It's, yes. uh, yeah. Um, and I was looking at a map yeah. today. It's not close to Vladivostok, but it's nearer to Vladivostok than anywhere else. Uh, yeah. And Vladivostok is right beside Japan, which yep. I yes. I thought everything was in a different place. So Russia kind of hooks around underneath a bit of China on the, on the Far East. And that's mm-hmm. sort of where we're talking about. Yeah, and it's, it's actually where uh, Russia, again, this might blow some people's minds. I know it blew my mind when I found it out. That's where Russia borders on North Korea. There's like a yeah, tiny for, little for bit of tiny. Russia right at the end of that hook that borders on North Korea. And mm-hmm. it's about, I think it's like 50 kilometers long or something. It's like a, like if you look at the wider map, it, it almost disappears when you zoom out of the map. Yes. But yeah. Russia, it turns yeah. out, is quite large. Huge. Uh, it is huge. It wasn't yeah. always so. So um, until mm-hmm. the 1840s, the accepted border between Russia and China under the Qing dynasty was a place called... Um, uh, was the Stanovoy mountain range. And everything below that was was called uh, Outer Manchuria. So we've all heard of Manchuria. Yeah. The Manchu people were an important ethnic group in China for uh, quite a long time. Um, there was that famous movie, The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, and when the Japanese yeah. took over large swathes of, of uh, China, they referred to it as Manchuria exactly. as well. So Manchuria is this kind of bit in the north, and Outer Manchuria is this even norther bit north of the River Amur. Um, and there were a few skirmishes between Russians and Chinese over time about this region, uh, but mostly until the 1840s, this was the border. Um, one interesting earlier incursion was, uh, you might remember Grigory Shelikov from our Alaska episode. He was the guy okay. who founded mm-hmm. the Russian-American company and colonized Alaska. Oh, yeah, Alaska. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when he was doing his Pacific trading, he was trading with China and Japan. He wanted to open Russia to the world. And he was really encouraging the government to colonize this river Amur um, as a kind of a supply route to the Pacific. So, right. you know, the people had had their eyes in this part of the world, but nothing major happened. But in 1847, a guy called Nikolai Moravkov was appointed the well governor done. general of East Siberia. Jesus. So he was... Uh, There's going to be some tricky names in this episode. Yeah. I can already feel it. Um, he was only 38, so it was quite controversial to give him a whole... You know, East Siberia is a big place. And he made it bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave himself a military force by creating a new Cossack host um, by arming 20,000 mm. mining serfs. You oh, know, boy. There were good times in Russia when you had all these serfs. Um, serfs up, baby. Serfs and, up. And uh, he <laughs> used them as his military force. So they, they had some independence as Cossacks. Uh, so it was kind of an appealing uh, prospect for them. And that gave him this this military force to to control the region. At the same time, a guy called Gennady uh, Nevelskoy was sent to explore the Pacific coast uh, on behalf of the Russian Empire. In 1849, he sailed a little bit of the way up the river Amur that we've mentioned before. And in 1850, he founded a, a city there on what was alleged Chinese territory. Um, so 
Well done. This is when it starts. A place called Nikolaevsk on Amur. Okay. See what he did there? Yep. Uh, <laughs> the Russian foreign minister wasn't a huge fan. Um, but Tsar Nicholas the, uh, the first, after whom the city have been named, of course, uh-huh. uh, he declared that where once the Russian flag is raised, it must not be lowered. And in the <laughs> next three years, uh, Nevelskoy established other forts all over this alleged <sighs> Chinese territory. Uh, so good lad. I Yoink. feel like the same logic is is like putting your penis in a shark. Like we we well we we've started now. We just gotta keep on humping, no matter how much it bites our face <laughs> oh, off. God. It's not uh, that's not a good strategy. <laughs> your similes are always very interesting. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, in. The summer of 1854, the governor general Murakov, uh, he sailed a thousand men down the Amur to to this uh, new town, and the Manchu governor at Aigun had no choice but to let them pass. So the Chinese were showing their kind of disinterest in the area mm. by not even resisting a little bit. Uh, then a few years later, the Second Opium War kicks off that you might remember from our episode on Kowloon, when oh, basically oh. all the European powers start kicking China. A lot. Yeah. Uh, and China was, the Qing, under the Qing dynasty, was weak at this point. Russia got involved in that. Um, and when Canton was captured by the British, the government in St. Petersburg uh, decided to activate Russian Far Eastern policy, which is very sinister. Uh, Mur- <laughs> Russian policy rangers, activate! <laughs> M- yeah. was given Sounds like somebody powers. pushed a big red button. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking a magical crystal ring. Yeah. And basically there were two treaties signed. One guy went to Peking to um, to negotiate a treaty with favourable conditions. And uh, the governor general himself basically besieged uh, Aigun, the capital of, of uh, this region, and got okay. a treaty out of them at about the same time. And between these two treaties, just with diplomacy and a couple of thousand troops and almost no shots fired... The Russians managed to annex a province of 350,000 square miles or 910,000 square kilometres of Chinese that, territory. That, not that's bad. more square miles of Chinese territory than I have of anything. Yes. So I don't have 350,000 yeah. anything. This is called the Amur Annexation and uh, vastly expanded the Russian Far East. So and with just why, why exactly did Why exactly, Joe, if you can tell me, did, did China mm-hmm. just willingly sort of seed this this massive amount of territory. Did they just think it's worthless or what? Well, the same reason they seeded Hong Kong and the same reason they seeded Macau, they were weak. They didn't have the resources to defend against these strong resurgent European powers at this time. And they hadn't really been enforcing their ownership of Manch- of outer Manchuria for a while. Um, so they let it go. It wasn't worth it wasn't worth the battle is, is my reading. Wow. And I guess at that point, they must have been, like, actually scared for the continued existence of China in general. Yeah, yeah, um, because you've you got to remember how devastating the Second Opium War was. China was on the back foot, and a guy kind of saying, hey, how about we just take this land you're not really using anyway? Uh, that's a deal. It's a deal. Yeah. So this allowed for the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway in the 1890s, connecting uh, Chita and Vladivostok. This produced a... A large influx of new settlers, the foundation of new settlements, and stations opened in various places like Bira, Bira Khan, and Tikonkaya, which would later become mm. the city of Birabajan. Yeah. So uh, that construction finished in 
1916 with the opening of a bridge across the River Amur at Khabarovsk. So this is kind of the the, the first actual quote-unquote settlement, isn't it? It's like a basically just a train station, like an outpost. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there are region, farmers right? there and there's Cossacks there and there's some indigenous people in the region, though I, I don't think any more in, in the Jewish Autonomous Oblast, um, which is a, a but specific... But there's not much going on. ...small section of this Amur annexation. Like this is a, a Netherlands-sized section right down on the Chinese border. For our American listeners, I believe it's about the same size as the state of Maryland. Okay. So, yeah, all right. pretty, pretty small area. Uh, and anyway, so before all of the revolutions that Russia would have in the 20th century, most of the locals were farmers. Uh, there was a timber mill in uh, Tunguski, and hmm. gold was mined in the Sitara River. But uh, oh. And there's a few small railway workshops, but that's sort of it. So not a lot going on here. Maybe 60 settlements. Um about a couple of thousand ethnic Koreans, a couple of thousand ethnic Chinese, and some of these Cossack farmers. And occasionally a, tra- a train rolling through. Yeah, exactly, yeah. on the way to somewhere more important. Uh, yeah, and yeah. the only other thing to mention in the kind of pre, pre-Jewish autonomous oblast history is that in the Russian Civil War in 1922, uh, there was an important battle, the Battle of Volochevska happened in, in the territory that we're talking about. And it was the kind of the last major stand of the, the White Army against the Red Army in the Russian Far East, where they fought in minus 35 degree temperatures. Uh, Holy God. So we probably need to take a step back and think about, you know, Jewish, why is, why, why is there going to be a Jewish homeland in Russia? What's, why does that even make sense? Yeah, so we'll give you a little bit of context. So in the late 1800s, we have the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, who I, I read up on this poor poor guy. He like it actually reminds me a little bit of the the assassination of uh, Franz Ferdinand as well, mm, where yeah. he was uh, driving he was driving in a motorcade in a bulletproof car, and right. uh, an assassin like threw a, gr- a grenade basically or a bomb underneath his car, uh, right. blew up the car and 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 killed like the driver behind him I think, but like. The the Tsar was actually fine, and then he steps out of the car to like survey oh, the damage, and so, oh, and a, a, a second bomber like throws another bomb directly at his feet, and uh, he he did not do well out of that. So yeah, that was uh, that was kind of like the beginning. I, I mean, not the beginning, but that was sort of like a catalyst for uh, anti-Semitism in mm-hmm. uh, Tsarist Russia. In, in, so, increased anti-Semitism might be a better phrase. Yeah, increased stepping up their anti-Semitism. Because game the Jews were blamed. It turns out they, there wasn't any Jews involved in the plot, but that never matters. Yeah, both the Tsar's son and his grandson, so the two heirs to the throne, had both witnessed the assassination, and they were like, that is not Ooh. happening to me. So... <laughs> They decided to crack down on anyone who was perceived to be be involved in a, in this kind of plot. And as you mentioned, Joe, the 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 finger was pointed at the Jews. And can I just just mention that the, the the Jews were in an interesting situation in Russia at this time? That since the reign of Catherine the Great, about a century earlier, they'd had to live in a place called the Pale of Settlement. Mm. Uh, so Jews yes. were only allowed to live in certain areas of the Russian Empire, and that was sort of the western bits. So the old Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth region, so mm. modern-day Poland and Belarus, Ukraine, Ukraine as well. and all the way down yeah. to Crimea. So there's kind of a diagonal line. Mm-hmm. And these are basically lands that the Russians had recently conquered. Mm-hmm. 
when they expanded into those territories. And there were Ashkenazi Jews there and there were Catholics, particularly mm-hmm. in Poland. And so there were limits on their ability to migrate into the, the Orthodox center of Russia. Um, but it most affected the Jews uh, because it always does. And uh, they basically mostly lived in poverty in tiny shtetls, which is mm. the Yiddish word for a small village, um, or in towns, working trades. And y- Yiddish, I mean, th- this is the center of Yiddish culture. This is where mm. the Yiddish language is from. And, and yeah. I mean, the big stereotype is, is Fiddler on the Roof and the, the book that it came from as well. That is the, if you're trying to envision it, if you have the access to that image in your head, that's that's what we're talking about. You know, uh, rural, agricultural, but then little, lots of trades as well. You know, um, furriers and cobblers and tailors and, and so on and so Basically, on. owning land and practicing farming w- wasn't mm-hmm. available to uh, to most Jews in the yep. Russian Empire uh, for yep. because of because of anti-Semitism, um, and so they were in this unique position to be scapegoated because they were always outsiders. Yeah. So Alexander the Third, then uh, son of the assassinated Tsar, uh, he passes these quote unquote temporary May laws, which yeah. do a bunch of things, including forbidding new settlements outside of towns for Jews, uh, imposing restrictions on mortgages and property ownership. And the Jews are then forbidden to do business on Sundays. And the temporary laws stayed in place for the next 30 years. Um, so yeah. really kind of crack down on civil liberties for mm-hmm. uh, this or- already uh, oppressed minority group. But so in, a, in response between around 1880 and 1928, up to 2 million Jews emigrated from Russia. They were just noped out of there. Uh, the vast majority of them went to the U.S., uh, ah, and, the, okay. and the Tsarist government actually encouraged this. They were like, "Yeah, leave. Why not? You know, like we we're, we're not super keen on you guys, anyways. We'll buy so a the bus kind of ticket." Stereotypical, you know, Russian Jew in New York kind of got, "Oh, in the old country, you know, things were never like this." That's these guys, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's um, that, that, that you know, two million people oh, have wait. an impact on America as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So. Then between around 1906 to 1912, uh, the Jews in the uh, Russian Duma, which I believe is sort of like the the parliament, parliament. in Russia, yeah. their numbers fell from 12 in 1906 to just three in 1912, reflecting the uh, emigration of so many Jewish people. and Falling about population and status. Yes, exactly. So the population was falling, people were emigrating, and the people were also being uh, marginalized as well. And this uh, really leads to... Well, there was a whole other clatter of more bloody pogroms in the early 1900s. I think about yeah. two, two or three thousand Jews were killed in Ukraine, for instance, in, in like 1903 or 1904. And this sort of leads to a lot of Jews becoming interested in Zionism. Yes. Because yeah. and, and some, some of the earliest settlements to Palestine were Russian Jews in the 1890s uh, or 1880s or 1890s going there and trying to set up their homeland because they thought they weren't welcome in in the west they well they weren't accurately i yeah. mean yeah exactly yeah so um, thinking about it yeah i have a i have a number here from you just mentioned those uh, early 20th century pogroms um that post the uh revolution uh, after the civil war and so on there was uh, more than two thousand pogroms carried out in the three years after the Bolshe- bolshevik revolution killing uh, 200,000 and leaving another 500,000 jewish people homeless yeah. 
So they so, were either huge. attacks or riots or driving out of people or seizing of property. You know, pogrom's quite a broad word, but uh, yeah. not good news. Whatever, yeah. whatever way you read it, you don't you don't want to be involved. No. So yeah, in then in. 1917, we have Lenin and the Bolsheviks come to power in mm-hmm. uh, Russia. With their hot second album, Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Yes. The October Revolution, that was in 1917. And then shortly after that, uh, Lenin delivered a speech on the anti-Jewish pogroms. And according to him, he said uh, anti-Semitism in Russia was an attempt to divert the hatred of the workers and peasants from the exploiters towards the Jews and to use them as a scapegoat. Good man, Lenin. All right. Yeah. Lenin on knew what was going on. He, he, yeah, he, he definitely was, uh, was switched on to what, uh, what people were doing in terms of uh, scapegoating this, this minority And group. the Bolshevik party did have, you know, not, not a huge amount of Jews, but some of the significant leaders were, were, were Jewish intelligentsia. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, your options, if you're being oppressed by the Imperial Russia, were to either leave like the Zionists wanted to, yeah. or some became parts of these militant left-wing groups like the Bund, which was kind of a workers' union, the Jewish Bund, and also the Bolshevik and Men- Menshevik parties um, because revolution wasn't appealing if you're an oppressed minority. So yeah. Lenin would have had comrades in in this revolution who, like Trotsky, um, who's the most famous uh, Jewish Bolshevik, who would have been kind of saying, here, here, Lenin, maybe beating up the Jews isn't great. Yeah. So yeah, Lenin uh, was you know outwardly and publicly opposed to any form of anti-Semitism and all mm-hmm. forms of racism. But a uh, few, some historians apparently argue that his record of the record of the government at the time was a bit suspect. Yeah. Uh, and that his abolition of religion, uh, you know, athe- like his stand uh, on atheism. Yeah. Was yeah. like, uh, I mean, you say you are okay with the Jews, but you also say you don't like religion. So, I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, he, but he, uh, I suppose. What you know, are people in, supposed to take from that? Intellectually, the justification for that is he didn't hate, like he, he believed everyone should be equal and that nationality yeah. and religion were unhelpful. Um, so being racist was unhelpful. But, but also, I mean, a little bit that is like, I, I don't hate the Jews. It's just those hate, little hats bug me. Yeah. Like, I'm against those yeah. hats. Like, <laughs> and so oh, the most no, passionate, not, um, the the most the passionate anti-Judaism people in, in, in Soviet Russia were communist Jews. Mm. Because they were like, you know, my, my grandparents are so stupid and lazy and bourgeoisie because they oh stick to I their mean, old-fashioned sorcery. Another... Another example of this is uh, a similar dynamic is what Stalin did to Georgia. Yeah, as which we, we, as we saw. discussed oh, a few yeah. episodes ago. Yeah. Um, it's easy to turn on your own if you've seen the light, isn't it? Well, you, you, you get to. You get that privilege yeah. uh, if you're from But there, then there's also the problem that most Jews, because they couldn't own property, they couldn't be farmers, all that kind of thing, were mm. involved in essentially petty bourgeoisie trades. They would have been shopkeepers mm. or or uh, smiths or jewelers or Mm -hmm. things that were not proletarian beloved by yeah not beloved by the soviets they were not factory workers and peasants uh they weren't that wasn't their fault (laughs) it wasn't that they were evil um fat cats you know sucking all of the productivity out of workers that was the only option for work that they had yeah uh and so because they didn't own any land so yeah 
I mean, that, that's actually, I mean, as we see what happens later on, that, that's a good, um, that, that actually happens several times to the Jews in Russia, that they're, they're forced into a situation and then they're told later on that the situation they're in is problematic and then they're made to suffer for that, so they change their situation and, and so on. And Birbhajan, as we'll see, actually has that example as well. They were kind of made go there and then they were told, well, that's Your being that. here is like, a problem, yes. <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, yeah. Um, Can't win. So, yeah, I have a quote here from uh, Dmitry Volkongonov, who is a, Ooh, a nice. former uh, Soviet general. And he he's written a lot on uh, both Lenin and Stalin. Okay. And he says, while condemning anti-Semitism in general, Lenin was unable to analyze, let alone eradicate its prevalence in Soviet society. So... Yeah. yeah, it's sort of saying like he he personally may have been against you know he he may not have been a an anti semite himself, but he didn't yeah. do enough to stamp it out in in wider society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and like there there were pogroms during the Russian Civil War between the Red Army and the White Army all over. Mm. Uh, what was it? Yeah. One hundred fifty thousand Jews killed during this period in Belarus yeah. and Ukraine in particular. And to be fair to to the Bolsheviks, the Red Army were the only ones who tried to stop pogroms. Uh, so they were following yeah. Lenin's command on right. that front in in the twenties. But yeah, and then tragically we have uh, towards the end of the First World War, uh, Ukraine for a, a, a brief time becomes independent, and a lot of Jews right. decide to go there. Okay. Oh, no. So Imperial Germany had made a peace with Tsarist Russia, and those the terms of that peace included making the Ukraine independent, and then uh, the conflict between the Red Army and the White Army. Between 1917 and 1921, when the Red Army won that won that war, they ended the Ukrainian Republic. So they absorbed the uh, the Ukraine again into into what would become the USSR, I suppose. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and again, the Jews are are under the control of the Soviets once again. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, Mark can't really win no matter what they what they do. Like I think I think the the people at this time, the Jews who who uh, ended up in the best scenario, were the ones who emigrated to the US. I think also depressingly around this time, uh, Berlin was seen as a, a fantastic yep. option uh, as a center of commerce. So oh, and God. culture, and culture as well, exactly. Uh, uh, should we take a little break here. Sure. Yeah, let's take a quick break. Okay, so I have another quick quote here from uh, Joseph Stalin, who is going to very, uh, very soon come into power in Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. So in 1913, while, while Lenin was, uh, was in charge, he uh, wrote that among the Jews, there is no large scale and stable stratum connected with the land, which would naturally rivet the nation together. They are not a living and active nation, but something mystical, intangible, and supernatural. Right. Uh, what sort of a what sort of a nation, for instance, is a Jewish nation which consists of Georgian, Russian, American, and other Jews, the members of which do not understand each other since they speak different languages, inhabit different parts of the globe, and will never see each other and will never act together, whether in times of peace or in times of war. So, 
as as we kind of lead it's into the point. foundation of Birbhajan here, it, it, yeah, that kind of encapsulates how the Soviets saw the Jewish nation, I guess. Yeah, uh, because within, as as the Soviet Russia. Union developed, this idea of um, socialist in nature but nationalist in character is that the phrasing? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, national in form, in. socialist in content. National yeah. informed socialist content comes into play, yeah. where particularly Stalin recognizes that people have nationalities, mm-hmm. and they're gonna work best within those nationalities, and so trying to immediately internationalize everyone wasn't going to achieve your revolution. So it was a stepwise process where you kind of go, all right, all you Ukrainians become communists and build your mm-hmm. collective farms and build your factories and be socialist if if you expand it out it's a, it's a weird kind of it's their version of what they hoped would be global domination yeah yeah but that the ussr wasn't really a country it was more of a concept exactly and it was just the federation by which all countries would then eventually be socialist in in, in the world and yeah it would just be the world eventually. and then nationality and religion and language would all evaporate because everyone would be a socially conscious worker um fighting together so like his idea was you start with making delineated nations that become socialist and then build from there and the jews Mm. were a problem because they didn't fit in to any of the nations that existed on a map and you don't want to be stan's problem there were attempts to set up um jewish collective farms in crimea and to make crimea Mm -hmm. this kind of homeland for jewish people as well as in ukraine and belarus but there was always fight back from the locals who were still anti-semitic uh so the, so lenin dies in 1924 and stalin comes to power and he kept on a similar kind of a track where he wanted uh each of the national groups that formed the soviet union to receive their own territory and express their own individual cultural autonomy within a socialist framework so like you mentioned joe uh culture was fine as long as it was quote-unquote national in form uh but socialist in content well culture was to replace religion that was the idea yeah in that same year, the unemployment rate among the Jews uh, exceeded 30 percent. And wow. the and the Soviets were like, OK, we got to get these guys to work. And ideally, we want to put them all in the same place. So I have another uh, another quote here from the president of the Union of Socialist Sof- Soviet Republics, who is addressing a 1926 conference on uh, these Jewish agricultural settlements, which we just mentioned. He says, it is completely natural that the Jewish population strives to find its place in the Soviet Union. The Jewish people face the great task of preserving their own nationality, and to this end, a large part of the Jewish population must be transformed into an economically stable, agriculturally compact group, which should number at least in the hundreds of thousands. So that's, that's um, in plain speak, kind of, we should get all these people and put them in one place and get them to And give farm them decent jobs that are, are acceptable to our new ideology. Just a note on that guy. That yeah. guy was uh, Mikhail Kalinin, who gave the name to yeah. Kaliningrad, oh, okay. uh, the uh, amber-rich uh, port on the uh, Baltic hmm. that we will inevitably do at some point yeah, as, as its own podcast. So a group called, called Comset was set up, which was the Committee on Land Settlement of the Toiling Jews, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great, great name. Their job was to create a homeland for for the jews by devoting resources and land to their to them and for like transport and put them to and work putting them to work and also to attract jewish yeah. money and settlers from abroad and from all over the world uh so the appeal of this eventual territory would be you could get there for free they'd pay your train ticket and you'd be given some land to work 
and a job and in Yiddish culture will be celebrated. So not not Hebrew. Hebrew is uh, very much opposed as a religious language, but Yiddish, the this kind of it it almost sounds like German because it developed in in mm-hmm. East Eastern Europe and in, in Germany. Uh, it's basically German with with Hebrew words and Aramaic words yeah. scattered through it. If you speak German, you can kind of follow it, but it's definitely a different language. I, I was uh, watching a, a Yiddish lesson mm. in Birbajan and it was all ik bin this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, all right. Yeah, so it's followable. It's but but that, that new culture, that sort of fiddler on the roof, the, the book that's based on by Shalom Aleikum, mm. was the kind of poetry and stories that they were to revere instead yeah. of their religion. So the committee set up in 1927. They send out some agronomists. So, you know, agricultural agrarian economists uh, to the area between Bira and Bijan, which will basically be from here on Bira Bijan. Uh, Bira <laughs> and Bijan are two rivers and uh, Bira Bijan is the land between the rivers. So their report, and this is a quote, We should especially like to underscore the significance of the blood-sucking insects, the exceeding quantities of gadflies, mosquitoes, and midges, which over the course of the two summer months cause extreme suffering to cattle and man. To fight the blood-sucking insects, the locals use smoke and strong-smelling ointments applied to cattle. People wear netting and headgear, but generally speaking, grow accustomed to the evil that are the insects. So it's it's not fun, this place. And you're Uh, saying, we could choose anywhere, but we're going to choose here with the evil blood-sucking insects. Um, And there's a propaganda movie that they put out, I think it was in the 30s, called Seekers of Happiness. It's a Yiddish language propaganda film about how you should go off and find your fortune well not your fortune your kind of socialist satisfaction you're you're the same amount of money as everybody else yeah all hail communism um but in in movie in the movie there is actually a a scene that we can put a link to um i found a subtitled scene where where basically some guy is is hitting on a, a a young damsel um and he gives her his his head net to keep the mosquitoes away while some her idiot brother is hitting his sexy, arms to try and sexy, kill sexy. the mosquitoes. So what they they a, were they were showing this in the propaganda, which is oddly honest. Um, so summers are scorching, uh, and the winters begin in October and go through to April. Um, summers <laughs> oh, also have torrential oh downpours, so floods are pretty common. Um, the locals, as we've already said, were kind of uh, Cossacks and Korean Russians, so they were kind of tough going. There was also apparently. Um, uh, marauding, raiding ethnic Chinese called Hongutsu, the term meaning red-bearded ones. Hmm. Uh, and the Koreans were growing poppies out there, apparently. Oh, okay. And that's why the Chinese loved raiding them and stealing all their, you know, Heroin. opiates. Um, apparently, the, the Cossacks weren't really farming out there. Um, they had destroyed most of the forests and resources were very sparse. Right. So That's yeah, helpful the, for settlement. <laughs> I know. That's great. <laughs> so the agronomist said the following... Farms are not the way to go. This is the worst place. Pretty much. They should be establishing factories instead. Uh, The locals are very hostile. Uh, It needs a full year of preparation before bringing people out. So building houses, infrastructure, etc. No one should come before 1929. This is two years in the future. And that no more than a thousand families should go in the first year. And after that, only a few thousand uh, each year. So Mark, Uh, I have lots of notes here with numbers and dates that um, make me upset now yep um, so you're saying no more than a thousand people not before 1929 and uh well carry on so uh russia ignored everything uh and decided to settle immediately aiming for one million people within 10 years <laughs> oh god 
So uh, Birabajan hadn't really, the city hadn't really come into existence. Uh, as we said, it was a Tihonkaya, which means little quiet one, mm. which is a Russian euphemism for a kip. So next year, April 1928, the first settlers arrive. Uh, and soon there are 504 families and 150 just individuals uh, in situ. The town had 237 houses, a single primary school, one shop, nothing else. There was no paved roads or footpaths. Uh, just wooden planks in the mud. And that gets referred to decades later as well, even in the 40s. So they didn't have roads for quite a long time. I have a quote here from um, a guy called uh, Mr. Geffen, who was the director of Waldheim, which is one of the first Jewish collective farms who arrived okay. at this period. And he says, 32 resettlers set a tent in the taiga, that's a kind of forest, 12 mm-hmm. kilometers from the station of Tikonka. Thus started the establishment of Valtime. People unbearably suffered from mosquitoes, but we knew the future is ahead and we decided not a step back. So they were just kind of, you know, well, uh, just going out with a tent. And Valtime is, of course, a Jewish um, name, means woodland home. Oh, Valtime, wood home. I get you. So there's two types of people coming, uh, mainly uh, Jews who had fled Russia in the early 20th century. so people coming from Argentina, U.S., Palestine, and so on. But then also people coming from within uh, Russian areas like Belarus and Ukraine um, from the decimated communities in, in Eastern Europe. Two-thirds of the original settlers turned back uh, as they were facing staying in tents. There was no housing for them. It snowed in May, uh, and they they hadn't really spent any money to get there. The the tickets were subsidized. They were free, 90%. yeah. Um, and, so and then those... the Americans, there were organizations in America like um, Ambijan, which uh, had Albert Einstein as his honorary president. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would have raised money for building up this place and also uh, would have sent people there. Throughout uh, the next 15 years, um, Birbajan can be seen in one context as as a propaganda tool mm-hmm. From the you know USSR to Americans, they're trying to show how you know how great they are and how kind they are and how fantastic they are. Uh, and one of the ways they did that was to allow all of these American groups to come in and spend money in Birbajan to try to you know set up uh, infrastructure and, and so on. Um, that actually ends up getting used against Birbajan later on. Of course, uh, the fact that they were so close to Americans. But back to the the hellish summer of 1928. The first uh, collective farm was founded eight miles from the train station in Tionkaya and was called Birofeld. The seeds came late from the Russian government and were then washed out by flooding. Uh, the cattle also were late on the train and were killed by an anthrax outbreak. Oh. Anthrax? Oh. oh, no. They put up 18 houses, but with no food and little housing, they were looking at a winter surrounded by tigers and bears in the forest. Um, only oh. a handful of settlers had farming experience, uh, and those who weren't sent to the farm actually did better because they were living near the Cossacks who were able to teach them how to fish and take them right. in and give them shelter. So those who were sent off into, you know, uh, forest settlements actually did really badly. Because they, they, were, really were, they were shopkeepers. Yeah, and cobblers and, and so on. They had no experience so, with this. Well, uh, no training, no money, no seeds. <laughs> no friggin' hope. Go on farm with no seeds in a swamp. Uh, have, have, yeah. Are you going to drain the swamp? No. Uh, Another issue was um, the types of settlements they were building were the kinds of settlements they knew how to build that were fine in the Ukraine, but mm. they were like clay huts and they were not well suited for this. But some were holes in the ground covered by a roof, which is oh, bad boy. for flooding. So I, 
mentions Valheim here specifically, just that uh, inexperienced new settlers uh, were just materializing in the middle of the night. Uh, just uh, They'd be hopping off the train and suddenly there'd be new people there and no extra food for them and no real plan for them. Um, it says, I, I, I took this from... Uh, uh, from the book from which I took a lot of my notes, which is uh, what, what Ian mentioned, Where the Jews Aren't by uh, Masha Gessen. Um, but it just ends with, uh, they would drive them in, drop them off in the middle of the night in the rain and leave. Uh, that's what they were doing basically with the with the settlers. So how many people are arriving at this stage? Sorry, I've lost track. There's a couple of thousands. Um, yeah, so the, in the first summer, it was a, a couple of hundred families. Okay. So yeah, you would say maybe a thousand, two thousand people uh, straight away. But a lot of people turned back from that first summer. But then uh, 1929 was better, 1930 better again, and, and 31. In 1932, uh, Russia has approximately uh, 2 million uh, Jews. It was another uh, bad summer, as, as I recall. But the, the settlement is kind of starting to take shape. Just so many people have been turning up on that basis alone. Uh, just that amount of people, it is kind of starting to form a, uh, a society. Just another mention about the harsh climate of uh, 1932. Even in the few greenhouses that were not flooded, everything we had been growing was killed, and then things got worse. We had no straw, cows started dying off, what grass we had managed to salvage wasn't enough feed for even 200 cows. It got worse than it had ever been. People started running. They ran during the day, and they ran at night. The ones who had saved the little something over the years ran under the cover of night so that they would not have to share what they had with the collective farm. Before winter came, almost half the people had abandoned Valheim. So that's specifically the settlement of Valheim. Um, 1932 was another another rough summer. I have um, a quote here, Mark, actually, if I can just slot it in here. It's, uh, it's from a resource that Joe and I, uh, maybe yourself as well, Mark, pilfered from uh, online from uh, yeah. American college called Stalin's Forgotten Zion, which is, if, if you're interested in this topic, it's, it's a definitely very worth good checking out. exhibition. Yeah. Uh, Swarthmore well, College, it's, it's I believe website. is the name of it. Yeah, yeah Swarthmore it's, College. But it's an exhibition yeah. with loads of video and audio resources all about the history of this place. Yeah, it's great. But I just want to highlight this particular section and <laughs> may give people a, a bit of an idea of exactly how new settlers were, were fitting in here. So it has... A story from uh, an American family who moved here in 1931. So it says uh, Morris and Rose Becker moved from California to uh, the Jewish Autonomous Oblast in Birbajan in 1931. Uh, Morris and Rose fervently believed in socialism and Zionism and had pinned their hopes on the Soviet Zion. After several years of living in the commune, the Beckers became disillusioned with the Birbajan uh, experiment. They felt that moving their family to the Soviet Union was a mistake. Rose then died of sunstroke in 1936, and within a mo- within a year, Morris died of pneumonia while preparing to bring the children back to America. Their children, oh, Mitchell and Elizabeth, remained in the Soviet Union after their parents' death. Mitchell was reported missing an- in action in World War II, and Elizabeth currently lives in Komolonsk and Amur in Russia. Oh. It says tragically at the very, very end, she has childhood recollections of the orange groves in California. Which is just oh, uh, no. like, yeah, that's tragic. That is really yeah. rough. Like, over a thousand non-Soviet Jews came. Um, yeah, large, largely from America, but also from Argentina and South America and Germany, um, yep. where there were decent Jewish populations. And people forget that there was, you know, a lot of interest in left-wing thought in in Judaism. Um, you know, even the kibbutzim movement in Israel 
going out into the into the desert and building up building up farms was very much a kind of commune based idea so it's not crazy that people would have seen this as an opportunity in the in the 30s so back back to 1932 i mean this was so um, cataclysmic for them uh, about 40% of the settlers that year left but now there was about 10,000 jews living in birbijan but because of what happened they they basically had to admit that the dream of an agricultural economic model it was done uh, so they started trying to create factories. This is a, a, some quotes from a, a guy called Brown, again quoted in the book. Uh, I think he might have been with, he might have been an American actually touring. They tried to impress me by demonstrating the factories that are already functioning in Birbijan. The friendly thing to do might be to leave them without comment. The factories manufacture, as they like to say here, 27 kinds of products. So you know, brick, limestone, carts, he lists out all the products. It was begun solely to create work for settlers who had despaired of working in agriculture in Birbijan. If I said that they shouldn't have started production at all, I would be going too far. But continuing production on such a weak foundation would yield regrettable results. So they had factories, they tried to move to that, but they were not functioning in any way. And, you know, they, all the problems with uh, communist production are there, you know, inefficiency, uh, lack of incentives, etc. Centralised et planning that isn't really planned. Uh, uh, one positive. Yeah. Let's find a positive in, in all of this. Go Yiddish on. culture did do well. Yes. They built for sure. a theatre and a big library, and all of the schools were Yiddish schools. Um, yeah. And this kind of secular Jewish culture based on literature and music and art was doing well, even while the people were, were struggling. They were struggling while being allowed to peacefully be Yiddish be Yiddish be, be Jewish and yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, there were six different Yiddish language schools in, in Birbijan yeah. and there was also a Yiddish language newspaper which was the Birbijaner Stern which still exists yeah which yeah still, still exists running. although mostly um, in Russian nowadays it, it translates to Birbijan Star correct yes indeed yeah. Um, and the the book itself spends a lot of time. It really actually examines Birbajan through through the history of the writers, because the writers were the kind of great intellectuals and thinkers of Yiddish culture, and were the ones kind of pushing the idea of Birbajan. And, and many moved there, as you say, there was a theater, and um, the culture was a huge part of the attraction that they would finally have, rather than a disparate spread over many you know hundreds uh, thousands of miles group of Yiddish writers that actually concentrate and they could do great things mm. if they if they were allowed to. But yeah, well, um, so going a little bit to, to the to the culture, flashing forward to 1936, Birbijan is is recognized officially as a Soviet uh, Jewish culture center uh, for the first time in the history of the Jewish people. Its burning desire for a homeland for the achievement of its own national statehood has been fulfilled, says the USSR. Uh, uh, that's actually slightly flashback in, in 34 they were granted their status that they still have as an autonomous region which was seen at the time as a, a big step for becoming a full socialist republic mm -hmm. um, which obviously we know now never really came to fruition uh, life in Biribijan actually settled down uh, in 35 uh, 8,000 people came and none left um, oh. I mean maybe one or two but you know they didn't have the, the mass exodus uh, mass exoduses that had happened in previous uh, years and the, because 8,000 people came, they were regarded as probably the Jewish population of Binabajan close to doubled in that year yep. alone. So th things were going relatively well. I think this is actually, you know, when you look at the whole thing, this, this is, is the probably the, the golden period. Yeah, but um, about four years in 
<laughs> to an 80 year history yeah yeah i mean it starts in like 1928 and we're in 1936 so yeah it's it's early days but this is this is the the, the highlight there it does mention about this guy called uh, Kazakovich who was the editor of the Bitterbijan Star Bitterbijan Stern uh, he founded a Yiddish writing group locally uh, he wrote these huge epic poems uh, made Yiddish translations um, there's a story about him bringing this uh, older more venerated uh, Yiddish writer uh, around Bitterbijan giving a tour and he the older writer gets tired and uh, Kazakovich just kind of wanders off and comes back with a truck which they, they make the point there was only about 10 trucks in this entire region and he just kind of like magicked one out of out of the ground he he knew all about all the local trees and so on he was uh I think talking about the local birds as well he was a real uh polymath this guy yeah uh he helped found the the local yiddish theater which was designed by a guy called hannes meyer who's, who's a famous uh, bauhaus architect so yeah there was people like this people who were you know really uh, totally engaged with founding Birbijan as a as a state, and it was on their energy that all of this success had been had been made on the backs of remarkable people. But in 1936, Stalin changed his mind. Well, I I just want to stick with the nice thing, okay. just just a little Fine. bit more, because it again with the orange. It's this is the orange groves, uh, California oh, orange God. groves memory of the Birbijan. So in in 1936, uh, they had a, a visit from Lazar Kaganovich who was the secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. So hugely important guy. Uh, he was the Commissar of Communications, one of Stalin's closest allies, and uh, was the most powerful, most prominent Jew in the Soviet Union. You, I was reading about him uh, today, and he, he was also known as Iron Lazar for his close association with, uh, with uh, Stalin. Um, uh, Joe Steele. Yeah. So the visit was, was a huge deal. He had a, a, gave a two-hour talk uh, to a meeting of party activists. He attended a gala production at the Sholem uh, Aleichem uh, comedy. Everything uh, is the named theater. after Sholem Aleichem. True enough. And he, he, I think he died in 1918. So he in, died in, before. In New York. In New York, exactly. Uh, but it was a, a, one of his comedies, uh, The Gold Diggers, at the theater in his name, uh, declared that the time has come to bring to the stage the heroic moments in the history of the Jewish people. He had dinner at a local party insider's house, Matvey Kavkin, eating Jewish food and so on, praised their traditional Jewish cooking, uh, the importance of which he stressed in some of his uh, speeches. And he also suggested that Birbijan should host a large scholarly conference in the Yiddish language. So huge deal. You know, the party's really kind of reaching out, bringing them into the tent. It's fantastic. Everyone's... Ooh happy should we take a break there before things take a take a turn <laughs> oh <God>. will, we, <laughs> will we just say but i will i will continue to inhale during this break preparing for what's to come okay dramatic dramatic tension huh yeah
anyway. Because, Mark, I have a quote from that guy, Kavkin, about him being purged. Like, I, I, <laughs> I'm just looking pleasant. at it. I didn't enjoy being purged. It, waiting, <laughs> you're describing him having a lovely dinner, and I'm just looking at the quote. Yeah. Bergelson, who's like the main writer profiled in the book, uh, he thought Kavkin was a bit of an arsehole, a bit of a boor and so on. Uh, but he was, you know, pro Bitterbajan, so uh, it, it, all in the service of Bitterbajan yeah. is, is fine. Uh, August 1936, so a few months after this big event, the chairman of Birbijan, uh, was a guy called Lieberberg, was called to Moscow. November, unmasked as untrustworthy counter-revolutionary and a bourgeois nationalist. Always. The Great Terror had begun, mm-hmm. uh, and y- Yiddish activists were front of the queue for uh, for these, you know, terrifying reprisals. I mean, Stalin was purging everyone. It was called the Great Terror Great for terror. a bloody reason. So like, this is wasn't... where Trotsky gets assassinated and everyone associated with him gets assassinated. British, everyone yeah. who'd been involved in the revolution who wasn't Stalin pretty much gets taken out. It's very much um, a consolidation of power. But there was an ele- a large degree of anti-Semitism in it because Trotsky was yeah. a Jew. So, so some things that hit Birbhajan immediately during these purges uh, were that the party leadership in particular in the Jewish Autonomous Oblast were, were taken to task for having built a national territory, basically. Um, and Matvei Kafkin, who you mentioned before hosting that nice dinner, he was the head of the Communist Party in the region, and he was then arrested for counter-revolution activities himself. He survived a long interrogation with the secret police and managed to emerge alive from a gulag uh, 20 years later. Do you know what he was uh, accused of? Uh, counter-revolutionary activities. Uh, but specifically of poisoning Kaganovich oh, yes. with that dinner. Wow. Yes. That's what he was accused of, of trying to poison him at that dinner. Uh, oh, great. Also, the 4.5 thousand Korean-Russian people who were there were uh, put on a sealed train and deported to Korea. Sealed train? Yep. Jesus Christ. And uh, all of the Jewish schools and teacher training schools were shut down, and organizations for promoting migrations into the Jewish autonomous oblast were dismantled. Um, I have a, a lot of examples of just, I mean, individual insanity from, from this time. Uh, an athlete from Moscow who was sent to Birbijan was arrested on suspicion of being an escaped prisoner. Two years in the gulag for that. Uh, a teacher, college student, was arrested and just never returned. He was vanished. Uh, a vet was sentenced to 10 years for allegedly poisoning cattle. A carpenter sentenced to death for sabotaging the local youth communist league. Uh, I have a classic purge story here. Real, real cheery one. Uh, when out delivering milk, a local in Birbajan saw a house with all the doors, windows locked and a boy crying on the porch. Uh, his parents, apparently, had been arrested in the night and now he was going to be sent off to the orphanage. So instead, he hung himself. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, this is like the level of just terror and misery that was pretty much standard at the time. I mean, people were just uh, disappearing um, left po- and right, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the national local councils were, were abolished uh, throughout Russia and non-Russian speaking schools were entirely closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Birbhajan at this point was about 18% Jewish. But I mean, the, the good days are, are over in that regard. A, a poem from this time by poet Arne Vergelis. Oh no. We've undergone heat waves and typhoons with a commandment announced to the world. You want to drink water? Dig the well yourself. You want to eat bread? Sow the field yourself. Um, okay, so purges were catastrophic for Birbhajan, but it's 1936-37. Uh, so 
1939, the invasion and partition of Poland occurs, and Russia had just inherited um, many thousand new Jewish citizens, many of whom are politically active. Where, oh where, shall we relocate them to? So this is during World War Two. This is the start of World War Two. Yes, the uh, the pact between uh, Russia and and Germany, mm-hmm. the non-aggression pact, was predicated on them being able to split Poland. Yeah, and there was a lot of Jews in Poland, so now there's a lot more Jews in Russia. So there was that was uh, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, right, Mark? Exactly. So we that. should we should just exactly uh, just for people who may not be up on their World War Two history at this point, in the Second World War, uh, the Soviet Union and and Germany were allies and. For a bit, uh, briefly. For 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 a bit, and Couple years. this uh, the purges definitely help Hitler because he uh, part of the, the the purges was Stalin sort of decapitating a lot of the military leadership of the USSR. Yep. Uh, so that's that's going to play right into the Nazis' hands uh, in the next couple of years here. So just to just to give people was, a bit of wider Molotov context not for that. Purged as well. Or is that later? Oh, mm, much later if it happens. Maybe the fifties, because Molotov cocktails and so on. He was the minister for defense during mm. World War Two for mm-hmm. the most part. So it might have been, you know, in another purge. There's oh, there, plenty of purges. There to were around, many. There's, Russia's there's exhausting. Yeah. It really is. Okay, so uh, in 1940, some Moscow officials uh, visit Bitterbijan, trying to relocate these uh, Polish Jews. Instead, they chose what is termed in the book the traditional option which is basically gulags and or Siberia. Uh, within weeks of breaking the non-aggression pact, Germany had taken eastern Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine, the areas that still had the Soviet Union's largest Jewish population. So now a lot of these Russian Jews who are in Eastern Europe are now under Germany. Uh, so they're and... either fleeing or they're going to suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Jewish press of Minsk, Kovno, Vilnius, Lvov, Bilyostok, they stopped. I mean, large parts of what was uh, Russian Jewish culture was just erased, was just gone. So the the idea of the kind of state within the state, uh, Yiddish communities, Jewish communities in, in, in Russia, that that Jewish nation is getting much, much smaller. Uh, and Bitterbijan in that way is actually becoming much more proportionally important to mm-hmm. it um, as as the, the spiritual center of, of what's left of, of Yiddish culture. You had a lot of people actually fleeing towards Birobrajan at this time, right? From uh, from the rest yeah, of Eastern exactly. Europe. Yeah. And Russia was quite keen to, to you know, have the Jews be out of the way. And Birobrajan is very, very out of the way. And th- mm-hmm. there was also an element of post-war people trying to return home to mm-hmm. these places and being refused passports and being told to go to Birobrajan. And, and that's from the from the mid 40s onwards. Yeah. Biribijan actually gets a lot more population from that, too. Just one mention of a thing that I had never heard of, um, but it, it gets mentioned quite a few times. It was called the Black Book. Did either of you guys come across the Black Book? No. So the Black Book, and when you think about it, it's, it, it makes sense. But it, reading about it, it really, it really illustrates at least a hint of what it must have been like to to be Jewish in Russia, but also for the Holocaust to be going on as a contemporary event. Um, a lot of uh, Jewish writers wanted to try to document what was happening, because what else can you do? So it was an attempt to bear witness to the horrors of the Holocaust, uh, or as much of it as they they knew about, as much of it, as much of it as they understood contemporarily. Uh, there was a call for contributions. Uh, Einstein was going to write the introduction. 
the full name of it was The Black Book of the Evil and Commonplace of the Killing of the Jews by the Nazi Occupiers in the Temporarily Occupied Lands of the Soviet Union and in Hitlerite Death Camps on Polish Territory during the War of 1941 to 1945. Wow. Yeah. It was to be written in 11 languages, especially English, so as to educate uh, and appeal to the American jury. But it didn't, never got published in the USSR. Um, well, the USSR the Russians... censored reports of the Holocaust. Uh, reports yeah, coming out of Poland would mention death camps and they would censor them out in, in reporting back home for some reason that I, I can't quite get my head around. When, when the Russians no mm. longer needed the promotion of how great they were being to the Jews to appeal to the Americans mm. because you know, the Cold War and so on and they were no longer uh, so friendly, they kind of blocked out this uh, this possibility of acknowledging the, the, the Holocaust. The, the, the Jews had found uh, the... Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee or yeah. Commission, J- the JAC. And the JAC was enormously important for the Jews to be able to internally kind of almost a little currying favor with, I guess, uh, with Stalin and so on, but showing that they are as anti-fascist as anybody. But again, this attempted positive thing was used against them later on. Yeah, they were all because, you charged know, for being members of it. And they, you know, the claim being that, well, you saying you're anti-fascist, well, are you saying that Russia wasn't anti-fascist kind of thing it's like <laughs> and by finding no, a group that was national in character you're being nationalist which is and, and, and that as well whereas before nationalism was seen as you know to a point was okay if, as long as you had your own like republic and also the very fact that they were anti-fascist and they had support from Americans made them very suspicious as well but anyway this black book was was a center point of that one of the uh, heads of the JAC was a guy uh, Nichols uh, he was uh, a writer uh, another writer uh, he was assassinated in 1948 uh, one of the main organizers the book itself never got published in the USSR as I say it did get published in uh, Jerusalem in the 80s and Kiev later on in the 90s but is something that was seemed to be a huge deal at the time but was never really it just got swallowed up by the information black hole of, uh, of, of Stalin's you know terror post-war there was a brief return to Yiddish cultural life in uh, yeah, the I, I think so. They opened a synagogue in 1947, albeit mm-hmm. without a rabbi. Um, yeah. And the Jews in Irkutsk donated them a Torah scroll, and they had four to five hundred people attending their Rosh Hashanah services that year. So it kind of got okay again for a little bit, and then Stalin went on another round of purges. Um, after the war, there had been about five million. Um... Of about 5 million Soviet Jews, about half had been murdered and about as half, you know, so a quarter then, uh, again, had been uh, displaced. And part of around this time when, when Birbajan enjoyed another kind of uh, flood of, of people into it, they tried to revive the Crimea idea. Right. Um, the Kaganovich, the guy who went to Birbajan for the culture trip and then yeah, accused the people of trying to poison him, uh, he rebuked them saying that Birbajan is the only way to go and then you had a different kind of uh, emigration to Birbajan because these were communities absolutely shattered by the war so there were ones and twos broken shards of people uh, soldiers whose communities were gone and then uh, communities whose you know men were gone mm-hmm. uh, so <laughs> widows orphans etc so yes there was an, another it was like a post-war push towards Birbajan and lots but... of plays in the theatre about the evils of of uh, Nazis yes yes of course um, 
But after the war, there was still no Yiddish paper mm. again. And Yiddish language was kind of, it receded officially and people mm-hmm. were a lot more secretive with where they, where they used Yeah, assimilation Yiddish. became the, the goal for most people. So it says, I have this interesting uh, anecdote um, from, again, again, same book. Uh, a Jew could still feel at home in Birbajan. This is post-war now. I recall an incident where one such character got drunk and in broad daylight began bellowing, Bejidov beat the kikes. In no time, he was surrounded by a crowd of Jewish war invalids who took off his coat and whacked him so unmercifully that he had a miraculous change of heart. Lyublu Yevriev, I love the Jews, he protested. The Jews of Birbajan did not hesitate to use their fists to answer anti-Semitic slurs. Wow. All right. Which is, I mean, fair. Good. Understandable. Glad to see that. Yeah. Very understandable. Between 1946 and 1948, then about uh, 10,000 Jews moved to uh, Birbajan. And mm-hmm. then in 48, as you alluded to just a minute ago, Joe, uh, Stalin gets the urge to purge again. Kind of inspired by Israel being founded. Yeah, he wasn't super happy about that. So Well, he... initially he was, and then he started getting suspicious. Like, it seems like Stalin was paranoid. Be he was a very paranoid man. Does it man. seem that so way, Joe? Goes, well, Does it really seem that hmm? way? It seems that way. Do you reckon? And he sort of uh, decides that Jews can't be trusted because they're now loyal to Israel instead of Russia. And, yeah, and they must be agents uh, of, so of Zionism and yeah, kill um, them all. Yeah. Just before we get onto that, there was one one detail that I I really liked a lot. Um, so it was as the the area is being flooded with uh, basically broken, destitute people. Um, Stalin was kind of saying, passing decrees, saying, you know, we will give them grain, we will give them food. When a, when a person was meant to arrive in, in Birbijan, they were meant to be given uh, spending money, a house loan, a loan for to buy a cow, 50 kgs of grain per family member, plus an extra 50 kg for the head of the house. But there was no grain, pretty much, because there was an epidemic, and there was very few cows as well. The region was promised goats by another region, but apparently there's this log of the one of the administrators making all these trips back and forth, asking about how are those goats coming along? Any any goats there? Oh no, not this time. Okay, and they go back, and then a few months later, so those goats we were talking about. Instead of the promised cows, people got certificates of cowlessness. <laughs> wow. Um, which I referred to in my notes as an I O moo. Um, but yeah, like it comically destitute, like just I mean, bureaucratically the gave you what we owe you. Just uh... mm. yeah, the administration is not able to deal with it. But still, it it's not as bad as I guess things are in in other places. But yeah, end of the forties, things are bad. So in the fifties, all the Yiddish schools were closed again. The theater was closed again as part of Communist Party policy. I think it was at this point thirty thousand books of of Judaica, as described, were burned. These would be yep. sort of old manuscripts of things pertaining to religion, particularly. Um, in 52 to 53, there was the doctor's plot in uh, in Moscow, where Stalin accused lots of Jewish doctors of conspiring to assassinate Soviet leaders. They, they almost That was very didn't. interesting, actually. Yeah. And he he died before he was able to execute this this plot. Well, is, he started you know, executing it. There, there's a linked event to this. So this was the, the the doctors, but before that, only months before, there was what was known as the Night of the Murdered Poets, mm. uh, and a lot of the the Yiddish writers, some of whom were the the Bitterbijan writers, were basically executed. Yeah. Uh, August twelfth, nineteen fifty two, the night the Night of the Murdered Poets, and then it was subsequently nineteen fifty three that there was almost going to be a similar uh, basically purge of doctors. 
uh, even though some of the people who were killed in the Night of the Murder Poets were also doctors and scientists and journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But yeah, this they were basically taking a, a group and just purging them and then moving on to the next group. It's very systematic. Yeah, so do, do, Stalin tries to do this with this this group of doctors. Yeah, and Stalin dies, and then the charges were almost immediately dismissed. Uh, the doctors were yeah. exonerated just a few couple of weeks after Stalin dies. And in a sec- quote unquote, uh, what was called a secret speech that Nikita Khrushchev gave in 1956, he stated that uh, the doctor's plot was fabricated and set up by Stalin, but that Stalin did not have the, quote, time in which to bring it to an end, which uh, resulted in the right. doctors living to see another day. So, yeah, it, 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 he was, you know, ridiculously paranoid even towards the end. And, you know, that was just one of the many purges that he orchestrated and just you know thankfully for those particular particular doctors it was the one that he didn't get to complete before he died so here, here are some uh, some terrifying quotes just from the the purges of these uh, of those writers that i mentioned some mm. of whom were birabajan uh, based writers um but bearing in mind that a big part of the idea was for them to try to revivify the yiddish language a question from one of the judges the lectures and the talks were in the jewish language yes in the jewish language so what is there to deny, the judge demanded. Uh, uh, another was, and this is pretty bizarre, once he found the scene comical, even while it was taking place, the investigator said that the American Yiddish journalist, uh, Ben Zion Goldberg, was a spy. Goldberg was an American spy. Really? Responded Bergelson. It seems to have been, the, in a kind of mock surprise, highly disbelieving, really? That in American English is more accurately rendered as like, oh, really? What are you, what are you talking about? In Russian, this intonation is marked by double punctuation. Really? At the end of the session, as Bergelson reviewed the transcript, he discovered that his really was followed with a period. Goldberg was an American spy. Really? Really. Wow. Uh, So, yeah, just the very subtle levels of, of deception and manipulation is really just insane to see. Yeah, I have a I have another quote here from uh, Nikita Khrushchev, which I'll just drop in here. Uh, he says uh, a hostile attitude towards the Jewish nation was a major shortcoming of Stalin's in his speeches and writings as a leader and a theoretician there was not even a hint of this God forbid that anyone assert that a statement by him smacked of anti-semitism outwardly everything looked correct and proper but in his inner circle when he had occasion to speak about some Jewish person he always used an emphatically distorted pronunciation this was the way backward people lacking in political consciousness would express themselves in daily life people with a contemptuous attitude towards Jews. They would deliberately mangle the Russian language, putting on a Jewish accent or imitating certain negative characteristics attributed to Jews. Stalin loved to do this, and it became one of his characteristic traits. Oh, God. Yeah. Great. So, mm-hmm. uh, so good riddance to him. In, yes. in 1959, the Jewish population in Birbhajan had halved to only 14,000 people. Huh. And it's going to continue uh, falling, right? Yeah. 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 And I, I found an interesting article from the 70s, a guy called Dr. Thomas Matthews, who was a, an African-American mm-hmm. activist. He was a friend of Nixon's, actually. He was kind of a capitalist um, African-American. Is anyone really a friend of Nixon's? Yeah. Is, that, is that possible to be? Uh, that's mm-hmm. my understanding. Anyway, he was visiting the USSR and possibly with, with negative uh, views of it already. Mm. Uh, but he was not allowed to visit the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. Uh, and he commented as he was coming home early that the USSR loves to hold up the Black Panther movement and rub it in the faces of the US government when they don't have a black population themselves. Uh, okay. But they're not so great when it comes to the minorities they do have. And the fact yeah. that they wouldn't let me see the Jewish Autonomous Oblast 
makes me suspect that there's a big problem with Jews in this country. Yeah. Um, there's a, an anecdote in, in the book of um, the Israeli ambassador visited in the 50s mm-hmm. and uh, him and his wife both came and they, they were with a handler and they were kind of wandering around. But they left the handler at dinner and they kind of went back to their room and they had a knock at the door and it was a, a local who just wanted to uh, read their any books they had in Hebrew and speak Yiddish with them and so on. Uh, and then few minutes few hours later there was another knock at the door and it was another person who came and, and they were singing uh, uh, jewish songs and so on but the the whole thing was so they were kind of getting a glimpse at the jewish culture that had now been kind of put on the back foot it was a private Hiding. thing it wasn't something that they could publicly acknowledge it really distressed the israeli ambassador so much that he actually cut his trip short he was meant to stay an extra day or two and he was like no can't deal with mm-hmm. it this is too this is too depressing too bleak I have a quick clip here from uh, the Yiddish Book Center in which one of mm-hmm. one of their uh, fellows gives a, a brief summary of how the USSR intentionally stifled the development of the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. So we'll just drop that in here. Biribijan was this area in eastern Siberia which uh, was uh, developed as a Jewish autonomous region with the hopes that it might become, in time, a full-fledged Yiddish-speaking Soviet republic. There were a few moments where Biribijan might have turned into something. One such moment was in the mid-30s. Another such moment was after 1945. Uh, But in both cases, the Soviet state uh, quashed whatever momentum was developing. That said, it's doubtful whether in the long run Jews would have uh, abandoned their homes for this mosquito-infested wasteland. There's one more thing I'd like to mention. It's just a bizarre detail I came across. Um, okay. That apparently this happened after the war, maybe, maybe in the subsequent years, decades even. Um, but apparently some Nazi collaborators were exiled to Biribijan. Oh, come on. Wow. Yes. Uh, Nazi collaborators are exiled to Biribijan. Ukrainians, apparently. So, yeah. I mean, you have so many gulags to choose from. Why would you send them there? They sent them to Biribijan. Former Nazis. Yeah, so I think just here we can maybe just kind of give a quick overview then of of Biribijan, maybe and just sort of, you know, say like, like it, it, hit its zenith i suppose around sort of the, the 30s would you say yeah, yeah 1932 or so um where there was hope at that point that you know it was gonna you know become an actual uh mm-hmm. viable settlement a republic and a, yeah a, a, state, a jewish yeah. state and uh yeah but I constant mean, purges did not purges help. world and, war and as... ii anti-semitism like purges again uh, and Birbijan was already a tough place to live in. Yeah, like they'd spent four years building that place out of nothing, and they'd made a good uh, a good fist of it n- as well. By the he, sounds yeah, massively. Yeah, but the so. the end of the Soviet Union, sort of, uh, you know, there was a whole economic crisis as the Soviet Union started to crumble in the eighties, yeah. and uh, the various factories, state run mandated factories, kind of shut down. You end up lots of people unemployed. The farming was never great. And as the USSR falls and travel becomes easier, yeah, huge amount of the Jewish people in Birbjan leave mostly for Israel, because so of course they're, they're... that's a logical place to go 
mm-hmm. when they have no country. Yeah. There was um, a statistic that, that I, I got from around that time, which was apparently um, 4% of the population in 1990 was, was Jewish officially. So, so that suggests about 9,000 Jews. But way more than that actually left for Israel. So it really kind of underlines how many people were, were Jewish and regarded themselves as Jewish, but would not you know, publicly declare it at that point. They'd learned from... Or had a know, grandparent. That, that's all Israel requires. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess there's people who just would have decided to move to Israel just because it would be a better place to be than it was somewhere Saudi you could Israel get well. you could yeah. get a visa if for. you had the option, yeah. wouldn't you? Israel's nice. I've been it's fucking deadly. It's great. Uh, nice country. So maybe this is a good point to to include. Um, Mark, you talked to the rabbi from yes. Birubajan, right? Uh, yeah, uh, Rabbi Eliyahu uh, Eliyahu uh, uh, Riss, and uh, he was just telling me about. Uh, modern day Birbijan and kind of his his view of you know government support for uh, Jewish education etc I was a little surprised I mean look when we were doing our little research around this at the, at the very start the the view was that it, it you know has this name of the Jewish autonomous oblast but in modern day there's very little way to see that that's not the case from what he described he, he had a very positive um, uh, version of things so I said that Birbijan um, it's different from our, the other cities in Russia because we have our culture, I mean, the Jewish tradition, culture in Birabijan. In, in Russia, sorry, we, we are, uh, no, we just have one region with the Jewish culture uh, in Russia. So it's a different city because if you can, I just, last, last, yesterday I was in Chabad. Chabad was in the same city and like uh, in other cities in the world, I mean, Russia. But when you came to Birobijan and you see everywhere uh, in the Yiddish uh, science, in Hebrew science, and uh, on, on the streets you can hear uh, streets and you hear uh, a Jewish music. And everyone, uh, it's, it's okay if you are putting you know, on, on your hand a kippah and nobody will tell you nothing. Just will tell you shalom, yes or no. It's the, the people here, they respect the Jewish people. And I didn't see here an anti-Semitic. No, nothing. And to, to be honest, like when we looked at, uh, there's quite a few YouTube videos about Bitter Jan and stuff from, from modern day. Um, Russia Today did a big, uh, like a 25 minute piece mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, okay. One element is, of, of course, they're going to try to portray it in a positive light. But it does look, you know, it does look genuine. It does, it, it does seem that, the locals, Jewish or no, have you know, they all have an awareness of of um, the Jewish history of the area. Well, that's it. And there isn't really that many Jews, but the Yiddishness mm-hmm. is celebrated. Yeah, you know, exactly. There's menorahs everywhere. There's a big um, statue of Tevye, the dairy farmer, the main character in Fiddler on the Roof, is there in the main uh, square. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there's all sorts of people attend the Sunday schools where they teach Yiddish. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. learn not Yiddish in, in any school there. And um, yeah. yeah, they have like, again, the, Yiddish libraries and that sort of thing. So it's 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 very well supported. So it seems like Stern, now yeah. in the modern Russian Federation, maybe there's hope again. Even though ironically, like the 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 proportion of Jews as a, as a as sort of a percentage of the population has fallen so dramatically low from where it was in the, yeah. you know, 30s. But yeah, it's it's uh, like Yiddish and Jewish well, culture is, is so well supported right now. But, he, but there is an interesting trend. Like that, the, the rabbi's family actually are an interesting example of this, where they'd gone to Israel, yeah, and then he came back. Yeah, his, his parents were from Birbijan originally, 
they were born there um and as he says he, he goes to israel and uh, you know there's some emigration in the other direction and one of the other things is, is just to mention that the you know yes the the jewish population is decreasing but the population in general in Birbajan is decreasing mm. it was 218,000 people in 1990 and it's reduced about 15 20% in the, the subsequent uh, 25 years yep uh and now china has a, a, quite a role on um the economy here I read mm, an article in the financial times about this so like they're building a bridge across the the Amur to to the nearby Chinese cities, and that's playing a huge role in the economy of the place. It's kind of an ongoing trend around uh, sort of around um, Eurasia right now that the Chinese are kind of building massive amounts of infrastructure and and sort of building out this Belt and Road initiative that they have. So it doesn't it doesn't yeah. surprise me that they're investing in this Kazakhstan's area. Kazakhstan's well. a big uh, a big target for a lot of them oh, as yeah. well. But uh, there's I mean. I would say that uh, in one or two of the videos I saw, uh, I saw some uh, not entirely positive views of this Chinese influx yes. expressed. Uh, I think for sure that that's creating uh, ethnic tensions locally. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys coming here, taking our jobs, etc., etc. I mean, you mentioned Kazakhstan. I, I think it's the same in a lot of places where, like, uh, you know, Chinese people yeah. get uh, get sort of shipped in. And live in their own communities, and you know, have their own housing and everything, and don't interact with the local people, and are you know, they're there building yeah. infrastructure or whatever it is. But yeah, it's it's still like and a they're very having the same attitude scenario. towards them as as the Jews had in Ukraine. Yeah, perhaps. true, true. Uh, um, so, but something probably didn't didn't mention earlier is that a big part of why this place was chosen instead of anywhere else was to keep that Russian Chinese border. Because there was a concern in the 30s that maybe the Chinese would try and take this area back. And having a community there helped stop that happen. And now it gives uh, Russia a foothold to trade with China. Well, so I saw that expressed particularly with the, the Cossacks mm-hmm. uh, originally when they went in the 1800s. But with, with regards to it as a place to, to send, send Jewish people to... I think it was actually somebody who was talking to you on Facebook, Joe. I saw a comment from them that like there there was a view also that if Russia kind of wanted to push out the Jews altogether, that having a place that on the fringe of another mm. great power, it could allow them to just kind of give it up if they wanted to. It ever if it ever became yeah, sure. an issue, sure. um, which is you know it's quite a distressing sentiment. But I mean, it's Stalin we're talking about here, so. Nothing's off the table. So nowadays, its economy is mostly agriculture. Mm-hmm. It's a breadbasket of the Russian Far East, and particularly Khabarovsk Krai, which is the next region over. Mining and tin, iron, gold, fossil fuels, and there's a lot of logging interest from Chinese companies. Because currently nearly half the autonomous oblast is, uh, is forested mm. uh, and, and swampy. Fishing is a big deal, particularly salmon. Yeah. And you also have wheat, rye, oats, soybeans, sunflower and vegetables grown. And just, just another quote from that, that conversation you had with the rabbi here about religious tolerance. So the, there's a lot of, um, obviously the majority are Russian Orthodox mm-hmm. in the area. And also they've had a lot of Muslim immigration since about 2008 mm-hmm. from Central Asia. And uh, he just had a few comments about how this is working out fine. I saw, I just, I just met the... The bishop and the I was in the mosque. So um, you know, I just came to the last last week to bless the Muslims people to the mosque because it was a Muslim holiday, and and they they are inviting me, you know, to 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 the mosque to to bless them. So it's 
it shows that uh, Ibi Robijan, we respect each other, and all the religions live together, you know, like one. I um I was in Russia not too long ago. I was in uh, Irkutsk, which is over in that general neck of the woods. It's only a few hundred miles away from uh, Bitterbajan. So similar kind of area, huge, uh, endless forests. Um, and you fly in, you're just coming over uh, these green roving meadows. You've, the amount of agricultural output they must have is 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 insane. But I was talking to some of the the, the Russians and asking them, you know, have you ever heard of Birbajan? Have you ever heard of the Jewish tunnel so less? And people have a vague, vague, vague awareness in Russia about it. But by and large, it's so such a fringe thing that it's really only relevant to the to the local area. Tiny, it's not seen far as, away, you know, and uh, very, very, yeah, very sparsely obscure. populated. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention, which we didn't, we maybe didn't touch on, is the flag. Uh, which ah, actually yes. looks like a gay pride flag almost. It's it's like mm, uh, it does yeah, it look it's got the rainbow crossing the center of a white field, and yeah, it's 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 really strange. I mean, it it, it predates the the whole gay pride movement, uh, but they they still fly yeah. it today, and yeah, it looks remarkably like the uh, the gay pride flag. I'm sure they'd love to hear that. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like that's a top priority. Well, in uh... they were they're actually investigated by the Russian state about that. It was investigated as as you know gay propaganda. Wow, they were cleared because it's been there for decades. But yeah, they were officially investigated apparently by the Russian state about it. Also, the uh, the coat of arms which shows the Siberian tiger, which you mentioned earlier, Mark. Uh, which is mm-hmm. yeah. as, as I say that, that that I've seen one of those and they are so big. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's just one of the uh, other things that that you you know when people first settled there, you're kind of going, uh, you know, blood sucking insects and floods and uh, yeah, what was it anthrax and, and anthrax? Yeah, bunch and of anthrax. giant Siberian tigers. Uh, but but it's it's okay, Luke. It's, it's okay because uh, the plaque I read in the zoo in, in Dublin Zoo about it says they're really really endangered. So they it's are fine endangered now. now. Yeah, they are. Uh, yay. Mm. So I assume people had shotguns. Oh uh, god, yeah. So uh, yeah, Birbajan, a uh, fascinating little place. Uh, unfortunately, failed experiment. Uh, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of misery in this episode. But uh, yeah, definitely, definitely an illuminating. It's a good way to end end the season, huh? On a oh, high note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean. The fact that, like, we picked a place that had both the purges and the Holocaust in it. That's a hell of a Venn well, diagram. Well, yep. we didn't right pick there. it, though. <laughs> it's the only, it's the only uh, thing I'll say. So we, 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 can, we can blame Ian. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, wow. here he is telling you how to get in touch with the podcast. Oh, so I assume you just want something like, you're listening to 80 Days Podcast. <laughs> this guy again. You're <laughs> listening to 80 Days Podcast. Ireland. <laughs> yes, 80 Days Podcast, Ireland. Uh, Slate that. I think we've we've nailed it. In a normal voice, like, I suppose. And, and and remember you can get in touch with with the podcast by email at eighty days podcast at gmail dot com or on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at eighty days podcast. <clears throat> I'm an actor, guys, I can do this. Yeah, you're you can, that's your line. Um You're listening to Eighty Days Podcast at some way to reach them and they have a Twitter too. <laughs> That's something. That's good. That's Listen good, to yeah. more to find out. Um, what was wrong with that? God, everyone's a critic, huh? We we really would appreciate um, feedback. But as I say, this is the end of the season. Uh, we've tried a few different things this season in terms of 
Some of our episodes have been longer than last season. We did a two-part episode. We've had interviews. We've had uh, commissioned episodes. Guest host. We've had uh, on-site visits. Recording. Yeah. We'd love to know what yeah. you liked and what you didn't like so that we can keep giving you the show you want to hear. Yeah. Uh, we we are definitely planning a season three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so don't, you know, if you're if you're a fan, you, you, you can keep an eye on the feed. Stay subscribed. But, um, we have some plans to put out maybe uh, some smaller projects between now and then. But yeah, keep mm-hmm. an eye on out on uh, Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, keep an eye on the feed. And we really appreciate all your support. If you would like to support the podcast, uh, the best thing that you can do for us right now is to leave us a, a rating or a review on iTunes. Uh, helps people to Please. learn more about the podcast and uh, boost our rankings in iTunes. Yeah. So we'd really appreciate that. We'd also that. love to see any of you who have uh, have the 80 Days Podcast t-shirts from Harry yes, Baby. Please. We'd love to That's see nice. photos of you on your summer holidays. Uh, <laughs> not in a creepy way. Not the way J- Joe's saying. No. That's yeah. amazing, but we'd love amazing. to see those t-shirts get around the world. So um, At a time and format of your choosing. Send them to not, us on Twitter you know, or, uh, or Facebook. Just out of the bath. Hair all tasseled. Mm. Whatever. Just, you know. Yeah, we on that note, we should say uh, a thank you again. Final thank you to our sponsors for this season, Harry Baby. Uh, remember, you can get uh, 10% off anything thank on their you. website by using the promo code 80days. That's 80days uh, for 10% mm-hmm. off. I just ordered a, a Father Ted themed t-shirt myself. Very nice. Very nice. Um, and also, we should thank some of our Kickstarter backers from this season. Uh, Louise Irison, John Colleen, and Simon Green. Thank you guys so much for your support. We really heroes. appreciate it. Damn they heroes. Are heroes all. Couldn't have made the season without your support. Yep. So, uh, And to all the people who supported us through the season, the, their names are listed at the end of the various episodes. It's been great to have that support yep. and to to know we've got listeners who who like what we that do. That really meant a lot. Yeah, that was that was a, a very high point of the season, I think, was, uh, was exceeding mm-hmm. our Kickstarter Bo goal. Yeah. And yeah, you can find more about uh, the podcast at 80dayspodcast.com. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, feel free to email us. Uh, let us know what you want to see next season. You can contact us at 80daysspodcast at gmail.com or uh, connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you very much for listening to the season. And we will see you guys soon. Bye. Das Vidanya. Das